You're listening to The Western Rookie, a hunting podcast full of tips, tricks, and strategies from seasoned Western hunters. There are plenty of opportunities out there. We just need to learn how to take on the challenges. Hunting is completely different up there. I've harvested 26 big game animals. You can fool their eyes, but you can't fool their nose. The 300 yards back to the road turned into three miles back the other way. It's always cool seeing new hunters go and harvest an animal. I don't know what to expect. If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you. Welcome back to another Western Rookie Podcast episode. I'm your host, Brian Krebs, and today I have Derek Abrahamson on the call. And Derek, I, I ran into Derek on social media, and I, I found your page, and I, I was like, wow, you do you spend a lot of time in the outdoors. And Part of it is for fun, and it appears like part of it is your job. I mean, you have a career in the outdoors, so I thought it'd be a really exciting conversation to have you on and just talk talk about the West. How are you? How does that sound to you, Derek? Sounds good. Um, yeah, I, I tried to to find a career path where it didn't really feel like I was necessarily uh, working. So uh, I, I do spend a lot of time out there. Yeah. So you. It says wildlife biologist, and you. We talked a little bit in the green stream how that used to be your official title, and then you've switched a little bit. But did you, did you get go to school or training like in, um, for wildlife biology? Like you, you obviously like. Does that mean you formally trained in in biology? Yeah, I uh, I, I did a two year program in Spokane, Washington, uh, for. I got my Associates of Applied Science for Fish and Wildlife Management, and then I transferred down to the University of Idaho and got my my bachelor's in wildlife resources. Wow. So it seems like if someone loves the outdoors, if you could become like a big game biologist or a wildlife biologist, especially in the West, man, I I feel like that job, I mean, obviously there's some weather, you're going to be outside and it's going to be raining or snowing or hot sometimes, but... For all of us that just love the outdoors, I feel like that's a pretty a pretty solid career path to have a fulfilling life. Yeah, it's it's. I, I guess it's uh, th- there's a lot of uh, stuff that is behind the scenes that that people don't realize. You know, I'd, I'd say twenty percent of my my job is in the field, and the rest of it is a lot of grant writing and yeah budgeting and and things of that sort too so um but the the 20% that I do get in the field really it makes it worth it awesome awesome well one thing that I was I was really interested in when I saw all of the adventures you've been on is the two things first of all I did not know Washington was known for some of the the caliber of elk that you have both tagged and also just pictures of trail camera pictures of so the the first thing is those must be those aren't Roosevelt elk are they those are the Rocky Mountain you know like the American elk Yeah so those um I mean some of those are from other states uh Montana and such but uh, a lot of those are from Washington state and those those are Rocky Mountains um uh, as a program here we did a elk reintroduction. Elk numbers were super low in our area. We did a, a release um, of elk from Wind Cave. Okay. And then we did another release from the Hanford Reach out of Washington State. So, and that was in '91. So since then, the the elk herd's been been growing pretty good. 
Yeah, it definitely looks like it's been growing. And then the second thing that I thought was really interesting was the size of the whitetails on your page. Now, this one, are those are those Washington whitetails or are those are you traveling for some of those whitetails? Because there are some hammers, which obviously the West has big whitetails, but I wasn't expecting Washington to be one of those states. Yeah, those are all from Washington. I've never uh, I've never hunted whitetail out of Washington State yet. Okay, just getting pictures of them. Or, or oh, I see what you yeah. mean. Like, you have never left the state of Washington to hunt whitetails. Yeah, I've, I've had a deer tag in my pocket here and there. This kind of, I, I really like elk hunting. So um, when it's uh, applicable, uh, I'll put in for a whitetail tag and just to have it in my pocket. But I've, I've yet to harvest a whitetail out of state. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Which, the caliber of some of these animals, we were talking about a little bit before we started the podcast, but... You work for the the tribe and the reservation as the wildlife management team, as part of the wildlife management team. But it it appears whatever you guys are doing is working because you have some some really high caliber um, animals that you've obviously had on your adventures. Yeah, a, a lot of it's just through through proper habitat management. You know, we 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 put habitat as as number one, and it it seems that the uh, the animals do the rest for us. So, oh, do you think by being a part of the tribe and working for the reservation, it, like, do you guys have more? I mean, we talked about you guys have a little bit more power because the politics of like Seattle don't influence as much what you're doing as it would maybe the game and fish. But does it also allow you to have like better funding and easier access to get these projects done? I wouldn't say we have better funding. You know, there's there's a lot of grants that come come through periodically throughout the year, and some of those are directed at tribes. Um, a lot of times, they're, you know, if they're federally funded, they'll allocate so many percent to tribes, but that, that's open nationwide. So, um, you know, if if there's millions of dollars available, you know, they might set aside. 10% of it um, specifically for tribes, but it's, we're, we're putting in for the same grants that like Washington state could get, you know, the okay. Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation could potentially get, you know, other entities and okay. agencies. Okay. It probably does make it a little bit more streamlined to get the work done once you get approved for the grant, because you're working with, I would kind of say like everyone's on the same team maybe more so than if you have to deal with the entire state of Washington and all the people in Seattle want one thing and all the people on the east side of the state want another thing, then it can probably be pretty hard, even though it's funded, to actually get it through and get it complete. Yeah, and we're pretty streamlined. It kind of, so as a wildlife program, we report to, there's a a wildlife committee that's appointed by our, our tribal council, and they they decide the the seasons and the regulations and that's upon from the wildlife program's recommendations on what we're seeing with population dynamics and numbers for the year and and things of that sort so we, we kind of work out our our goals together and uh make plans from there okay so one thing that i've always wondered and i'd be really curious to see how it works for you in washington is i've i've seen a lot of people like especially when i lived in north dakota because they had big game on or you know they had elk on reservation land whereas like minnesota where i'm at now we just really have whitetails as big game species and some black bear but they're pretty evenly distributed across the entire state 
so it, it's the same opportunity whether you have like private land or or tribal land and so no one really talks about hunting a tr- getting a, a reservation license as much as they do maybe in the west but that's something i've always been curious about is like is it common that like a a non-tribal member or a, um, someone that has no native american um, ancestry or genes at all can apply for a tag on a reservation so that all depends on the reservation. Um, there's there's over 500 different tribes in the United States. So 500 tribes, 500 different treaties or agreements, and 500 different rules of, of fish and game regulation. So uh, on our reservation, we do not allow for hunting. We, we do allow for um, spouse tags and first-line descendant tags. Okay. We allow for um, non-member fishing in our reservoir, but on, on our tribe, we, we don't allow for public hunting. Okay. So if you do find a tribe that allows public hunting, you could apply for it, and then obviously it just comes down to whether or not you get it, or maybe if there's a tribe that has over-the-counter and you could purchase it, that sounds like it could be an option. If you Are you familiar with any like reservations or tribes near you that, that offer that opportunity? Yeah, correct. So there's there's various tribes. I know um, the the reservation across the river from us. They 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 sell tags for like chuckers and um, game birds and things of that sort. I know the uh, uh, one of the tribes on the coast. They have really big black bear that they sell hunts for. And I think you're required to have a um, a tribal member as a guide. Same thing goes with, along the lines with like say the uh, San Carlos or White Mountain Apache. You know they have gigantic elk and they're they're selling hunts for, you know, I've, I've heard numbers of $70,000. So it, it just depends on the reservation. This episode is brought to you by Steelhead Outdoors, creators of the only American-made fire-insulated modular gun safe on the market. That means you no longer have to convince three or four of your buddies to help you move your safe. No more blown-out backs or pulled muscles and no more dings and dents to your home. They recommend having two people to lift and assemble your safe which would make it incredibly easy because I just put my Recon 32 together by myself and I had it set up in less than an hour. I carried each panel of my safe into my home with just my two hands, yet once assembled, it had the same security and ruggedness you would expect from a gun safe. They have designed an integrated door frame, so it is nearly impossible to get into your gun safe without the code, which means your firearms are always 100% secure. Before I had my Steelhead Outdoors safe, I needed to get three buddies to help me move my old safe in and out of my home, and it was always the most stressful part of moving. But not anymore. Plus, every Steelhead Outdoors safe is made right here in Minnesota from start to finish, which means you are supporting a local business when you buy a Steelhead Outdoors safe. Check out SteelheadOutdoors.com to see all of their size and color options and pick the right one for you. And use the code WESTERNROOKIE, that's one word, WESTERNROOKIE, to save $150 on your Steelhead Outdoor Safe. Oh, wow. So, I when I think of, like, reservation land, I'm most familiar with, like, Montana and North Dakota, which I, I understand might not be your, your, your strong suit because that's on the other side of the mountain range from you. But I've always been worried that even if I got a, a reservation tag, would it feel like 
an outsider encroaching on the people that live there as resource? Because I, I understand it. I mean, in a way, like if I found someone hunting on my farm here in Minnesota, I wouldn't want them to be there. Like, I, this is, you know, something that I've built and this is my home. And it, does it get that feel or would it, if the tribe is open to public hunting and you can buy a tag, is people there um, pretty used to it and, and common with it? You know what I'm saying? Like, I just, it's so unfamiliar to me. I don't want to like, I don't want to do something that's going to be not received well by the local people. Cause I don't want to, like, I don't want to impede on their resource and on their home if, if that's not what they really want. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I imagine anywhere you go, there's, you can get that out outsider feeling um, coming in, you know, even you could me being from Washington, I can go to Idaho and buy a, a general elk tag and get that, that feeling just because I have Washington plates on my pickup. Um, but for the most part, a lot of the tribes that do allow for hunting, a lot of those profits directly go back into the fish and wildlife programs. Okay. So I, I think there's a, there's an understanding that, you know, that this is, the overarching benefit of the fish and wildlife species on on those reservations yeah but i i imagine you, you still get the the few people who just aren't aren't happy with anything i guess yeah maybe it would be best to like at least go guided if it's even allowed to go unguided that's a that's a separate thing but like go guided so you have someone that's from the local community that can kind of be with you and say yeah this is how we do it and then if anyone does stop you they know that like you're doing it right. Like you have a, you have a guide from the, from the tribe with you. You're, you know, you're following the rules. Maybe that'd be the way to go. I like how you mentioned like the plates thing, because that is big. Um, and yeah. I have Minnesota plates, which is one of the worst received plates in the Midwest. When you go out of state, like when, when you go to Montana and you have a Minnesota plate, you really get the outsider treatment. And I think, you know, we typically see a lot of Washington and a lot of Minnesota plates at trailheads. And I think the locals just, they start to get sick of, like, everyone's coming from, you know, Minnesota to hunt my elk. Yeah, I've, I've had that feeling, too. I've, I've, I've hunted elk in Idaho and, and got that feeling, you know, they, they see my Washington plate. and <laughs> So, yeah, it depends on where you go, how welcoming it could be. Yeah, yeah, that we'll see the Colorado will be new for me. Um, I don't know if it's going to be as bad as it is in the past, but we're headed to Colorado archery season in just a few weeks, actually by the time. No, I don't think this one will quite be, this one will be before we go, but a couple weeks after this airs, we'll be in Colorado elk hunting, which I'm excited for, but our tag is like basically an over the counter tag. And so it's not nearly as exciting as what you've got lined up this year. Cause you said you have, two limited entry elk tags this year it sounds like right yeah well i'm actually so depending whether um there's a lot of fires around uh i guess the fairbanks area and it's blowing smoke into the hunt area um we're kind of listening day by day we're supposed to go to alaska for caribou on sunday um this coming sunday so that's that's first on the list. And then, uh, I have, uh, I drew a reservation muzzleloader tag, um, here in Washington state. And I also drew a elk tag on the Navajo reservation. Um, and that's a, a spouse tag. My, my wife's Navajo and uh, I, down there, they also draw for non-member tags. So that that's also a possibility. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that, I assume it's probably not much easier than like a non-resident 
off reservation tag to draw. I mean, obviously, the a majority of the tags they pick are probably going to tribe members, spouse tags. You know, the what you would maybe think of more as a resident. Obviously, it's a little different, but I'm assuming it's a pretty small percentage for for us folks that are non-resident and non-native. Yeah, the the number I think for the the tag I drew, I, I think there's. I might be wrong, but there's four or six spouse tags available, and I think there's about the the same amount for non-member tags. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I might have to look into that because New Mexico is on the list. I know if it's that, that's only part of the reservation, but New Mexico is on my list to elk hunt one day because I think it would be so much fun, especially after shed hunting down there and just seeing the different type of ground. Um, but the so you've. You've shot a few elk, it looks like, and you, you, you're around them all the time with your job, whether it's in the office planning for the elk or in the field doing projects for the elk. I mean, I see some hel- really cool helicopter pictures of, like, bulls traveling in the winter and stuff like that. So when it comes to these limited entry tags, are you setting a specific bar for what you want to see and get out of it for, from, like, an animal standpoint? Like, do you have a, a number in your mind that you're going to hold out for? Uh, in my mind, uh, I'd like to hold out for 350 plus. Um, and that's, I, I think, um, I think I've hit that number a couple times and I just, uh, since I, I get the opportunity to fly the reservation and, uh, I, I, I hunt the reservation a lot too. So I, I feel like that's an achievable number with one of those special tags. Yeah, I'd. I mean, I definitely think that's a fun goal. I've I've hit that number one time in my life, and man, is it a special bull when when they hit numbers like that. I mean, they just have they have more character, more mass. It, they're just I love it. I get I get so ate up with big elk that I I definitely feel you with holding out for an animal like that, especially on a special tag. I mean, I shot mine on a once in a lifetime tag, so I can't even apply for it again. And I knew there was big elk in the area, so I definitely held out. Um, and so it's it's I always ask because elk are such a an interesting thing where you can have someone like yourself that lives in the area, and most people can't fly the range, which that's a huge advantage to you all summer long, being able to like just get eyes on and see what's out there. But some people live there and they can hold out and they can hunt all season, and other people like myself have to travel and we get seven days to get it done, and so. In, in Colorado, for example, I'm going to shoot the first legal elk, whether it's a cow or a, a legal bull. I'm not holding out for anything with my bow versus I've already shot and I've already shot a 350. But that's because that tag was so special that I waited and passed up a few elk, even though I hadn't shot one at that time. That was my first elk was a 350. And so I just I like hearing what people what their goals are, because it's really interesting on hunts like this to be able to to really look at some bulls and pass them up. I think that's my favorite part about hunting the West is the number of game you get to lay eyes on. And if you have the right tag that allows for it, you get to pass up some and, and be a little picky. And I love that. Yeah. I've, uh, fly, fly in the range. You know, I kind of just more or less get a, get a, a index on, on what's around. Um, since we fly in about the, January, February months, um, everything's in its winter range. So that that's not extremely beneficial to, I think, like the archery and muzzleloader seasons. I, I've, ha, I've never shot a big bull with a rifle. Um, 
uh, on reservation, what happens is if you don't draw one of the special tags, we have a, a general rifle season. And that's, uh, I, I guess I'm the opposite. I, I don't hold out with a rifle, but I will be picky with a bow in my hand or a muzzle loader. So is it with the, with those two seasons then, is there a drastic difference in like the challenge? Like, is it hard, is it just hard to, to find mature elk in rifle season because of the time of the year? Or is it more so like at that point in the year, you're just looking for meat in the freezer and you want to bring something home to feed the family? It's, it's both. It's, um, it's also, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of people out during our general season. And, you know, I, I have, a I have five kids too. So filling the freezer gets pretty important. So if, if I see something with a horn on it with during our, our general rifle season, it's, it's going down. Yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, I don't have five kids, but me and my wife eat a lot of meat every year and, it, you start adding it up like a, a white-tailed deer doesn't make much of a dent in the in the the meat needed for the year number. You know, like we we go through like 300 pounds of meat a year, and a white-tailed doe only usually has 30 to 40 pounds of meat on it. So it really helps when we get an elk. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, typically, I'll I'll buy a Washington uh, General elk tag, and uh, I've I've only drawn these uh, limited entry reservation tags. Uh, this will be my third time, so it, that don't come around too often. No, but it's got to be really fun when it does. I, there's something when you have like, uh, when you have a limited entry tag in your pocket, doesn't it seem like the entire summer it just has more excitement to it? Like you know this is coming, you plan harder, you shoot more, you exercise more. Because you know there's something special coming versus, I mean, I think there is a difference between just an elk hunt and a, a limited entry elk hunt in that regard. Yeah, uh, the reservation, we draw super late. So uh, we just drew, I think, two weeks ago. Uh, so we find out pretty late. Um, but I have I have drawn a, a good Montana tag. And, you know, that, that draw comes a lot earlier. And I, I agree with that. You know, the, the preparation is tenfold of what it normally would be yeah yeah and it looked like you i mean i'm trying to like piece together the story from from all the pictures you have but it looks like you ended up with a really nice bull after what appeared to be a pretty hard hunt yeah there was uh one thing with that that hunt was i'm so used to calling being out of washington state Mm -hmm. um you know there's a lot of steep country it's really timbered so so calling is extremely beneficial and uh going over there to montana where it's so open there were so many elk that that the big bulls didn't seem to care about the calls you know i i was able to call in some smaller bulls and that the big bulls just they don't care when they have you know 80 cows with them so it, it was kind of kind of a little bit of a culture shock almost of a figuring out different tactics on how to sneak up on those big open sage flat bulls. Yeah. It, I mean, that's the other thing I was going to comment on is, I mean, I don't know where you shot the bull, but where he tipped over, there's almost nothing to hide behind. Was that a South, like an Eastern side of the state tag? Yeah. 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 That's funny. I just met, I've, I just found out through this podcast that I have a cousin that is an outfitter in that part of the area, but I always thought like, man, it's gotta be hard to hunt elk in the open 
because calling is only going to be so effective if you can't set up a, a caller shooter and there's nothing to hide behind. I mean, you're basically like crawling through Sage to get close enough, right? Well, so the the Elkert was was moving up um, one of the ridges leading up to their their bedding area, and um, I was getting ready to come home uh, within the next couple of days. So we kind of just made a effort. Uh, I have a brother that lives over there, and we um, we just decided to more or less every time the elk would look away, we would just run across this uh, this sage flat leading up to the ridge and every time they'd, they'd stop to you know pick up their head and look around we would just kind of red light green light the whole way it, it had to have been a mile or so before we were able to to, to get in close enough and um we we snuck up behind the elk and uh, i was able to get a shot at 63 yards on that one wow so was it a whole herd like a this bull and a, and a full harem of cows that you were trying to dodge eyeballs with uh, he was actually one of the satellite bulls. Um, he was probably one of, I'd say, about five or six bulls in that herd. Um, there was a, a great big bull in, in the front, you know, kind of leading the way. And, you know, he was one of the bigger bulls towards the back. So, Man, I'm looking at the pictures right now, and it's hard to believe that that's a satellite bull in any unit in America. But that... I mean, I believe it. It's just that's a big bull. I mean, that's a solid bull. Yeah, um, I, I almost, uh, I almost shot the wrong bull. Um, we kind of popped up there, like on the other side of the picture. There's some, some pinion junipers, and mm-hmm. uh, when we first got up on the that ridge with them, uh, a different bull had walked out, and I just about, uh, you know, did the the blackout mode and. Uh, I shot the wrong bull, but I was able to to hold off a little bit and, and connect on the right one we were targeting. Oh yeah, that looks cool. That looks cool. What I've noticed from the the all of actually really all of the bulls that you've got pick that you've tagged, they're all wide bulls, or at least they look yeah. wide. I've never shot a wide bull. I've shot two decent bulls, but both of them were. I think one was like thirty four inches wide and the other one was like 33 inches wide very narrow bulls by all by all accounts really for a mature bull and so i'm 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 look i I just i feel like those wide ones just add a different add a different aspect when they're you know 40 45 inches wide that just frame looks so much more impressive yeah i think that montana bull is probably 46 or 47 inches wide inside uh I'm a pretty big guy, so the uh, I, I typically make my animals look uh, smaller. Yeah, well, <laughs> there's nothing making that elk look smaller. It looks a pretty big elk, but yeah, that's what I mean. I mean the the 354 that I that I tagged that was the one that was only 34 inches wide. So thir- like imagine taking 13, 14 inches off of your bowl and then adding it back in time length and mass really it came back in mass to make it 354 anyway i mean it's it looks extremely narrow for how big everything else is yeah i I shot a similar bull i don't know if it's um if it's on my instagram or not um it might be on one of the pictures that i have of my wall at my house but i i have one bull that came out of oregon that's kind of the same thing you know has a like a 34 35 inch inside spread and just really long tined 
Okay. Are all those – so I see some mounts. Well, one of them looks like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation building. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. That, that um, Okay. I think that's when I first uh, got my Instagram and was just putting up pictures. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, those the, – It's. I'm waiting for a wide one. And I think maybe it was just where I was hunting. They didn't weren't known for wide bulls, or maybe I just picked a, a narrow bull. But – I'd love to shoot a nice big wide one because I think it just makes. I just think it makes them look like really really cool to have all that that space and that big like the big hoop like the big frame. I think that looks really cool on a on a mature bull. But. Yeah, I, th- I think some of that's genetic too. You know, um, here in the with RL herd where I work, you know, we're we're kind of plagued with short thirds and. Uh, we get that that double royal quite a bit, um, and it seems to just be a gene that stays in there. Well, that's not a. I mean, short so it, thirds aren't the best thing, but they're usually short anyway. So that double royal is definitely not a problem. You'd love to see that on every elk. Yeah. So the you know if if you're hunting an area that historically has wide bulls, I'd say your chances of of getting a wide bull be pretty good. Well, the one thing is we've never we we usually don't hunt the same unit multiple years in a row because we're all non-residents and so we all have to bounce around to get the tags, and so like this year it's a brand new unit for us as well. Um, last year was a new unit to archery hunt. The year before that, we rifle hunted instead, so that didn't count. And then you know we do have a favorite spot, but it takes us like three or four years to draw that tag. Yeah. And that gets worse every year. So, but, um, how does it, how does it compare? Cause I seen you've done some African hunting and it looks like you used your bow for some of it as well. So how does it compare? Is there like a, is there a major difference between the animals over there in like shot placement, shooting distances, like arrow design, or is it pretty similar to an elk? So I, I think, um, I think elk are still the the toughest thing that most bow hunters will ever go up against. You know, elk just have this will to live that seems unmatched. You know, they they're so strong and they're they're such amazing animals. I, I don't know that there's an animal as tough as an elk. Um, the the African stuff. I went on that safari probably seven years ago, and the the game over there is a lot thinner skinned. I wasn't quite sure on what I was getting into going over there. So uh, I was told by the, the pH just to aim farther forward than we're used to. So I was almost aiming just straight up from the leg. Oh, interesting. On, on all my shots, they said, uh, you know, the, the African game, they were explaining to me that the, the, the muscle and bone structure of the African games pushed farther forward um, in the chest cavity. So they said, just straight up the leg. And I, I brought over a pretty heavy arrow. I, I think my arrow was probably about 560 grains or so. Mm-hmm. And um, I got passed through, and I'm skipping arrows off the ground into the trees through through everything. And, um, yeah, I, I'd say none of it was compared to an elk. Interesting, yeah. Do When the, when the African game was hit, 
in your experience, I mean, obviously, it's just you can only talk to your experience, but did they, would they run as hard and as long as an elk, or would they tip over a little faster? Because in our experience, when you hit an elk, man, they, they death run down the mountain, and they can cover, like, we've double lung some elk, and they still cover 150, 200 yards or farther before they tip over. Yeah, the, the only animal, um, the, the pH we were hunting with, he had a, a camcorder going the whole time, and the only animal that didn't die on video was uh, the wildebeest I shot, and he made it probably 150 yards or so. Okay. Uh, everything else just seemed, uh, you know, that they'd run out there and, um, you know, on camera end up tipping over within about 100 yards. Would they just, like, kind of stop and think about what happened and what spooked them and then eventually run out of, like, blood and tip over? Yeah. And then uh, all, all the shots were super close. It was pretty thick in the area where we hunted it, and it was flat, so most of it was out of elevated ground blinds. And so I'd, I'd say my farthest shot was probably 26 yards. Oh, wow. And so uh, some that, of... that's something I, I'm not used to either, so... Yeah, 26 yards, and it's, for the most part, pretty large game. Like, it's, they're giving you a big bullseye to aim at. Yeah, the the kudu um, was probably uh, the closest size to an elk. They're just skinny. So if, if you put, say, 50 pounds more meat in their hindquarters and uh, about the same in their front shoulders, they'd be about the same shape as a, a big bull elk. Is a kudu the one with the big, long, twisted horn that goes up in a spiral? Yeah. Okay. Those look pretty cool. Those look really cool, actually. That's a pretty cool-looking animal. Yeah, I was just curious about that. I wonder if what you saw over there is because you were shooting such a – I assume you, if you're a bigger guy, too, you're probably shooting, like, a longer draw and maybe a higher-weight bow. And with that heavy arrow just punching through so fast, I've heard people talk about – they used to see a bunch of deer die on camera when they were shooting fixed blades, and then the mechanical blades all came about, and everyone switched to them, but they started getting less pass-throughs, um, and deer started, it seemed like deer were running harder after they got hit with those mechanicals because it was cutting wider, hitting harder, more energy transferring to the animal instead of punching right through. And so they knew that, it's almost like they knew they got hit by something and they would take off versus... They thought when they were shooting those heavier fixed blades, they'd punch through and the animal would maybe go into shock so fast that they're like, I don't know what happened. And then they'd run 50 yards and stop and look back and then tip over. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. I've never, um, I've never heard that, but thinking of, of all the elk I've shot, the, the farthest they ran were all with mechanicals. I've, I've went back and forth. I'm, I'm mainly a fixed blade guy. Um, and thinking of all the, the elk I've shot with a fixed blade broadhead, you know, they'll stand there more or less. Um, they'll jump out of ways and try to figure out what happened and uh, eventually just kind of tip over. And the the couple of big bulls I've shot with a mechanical head, they're they're running a lot harder. Did you? I, I, I totally agree with that. Did you get pass-throughs with both broadhead types? So I, I shot um, a big bull frontal with one of the older rages. Um, so that just kind of went, went fletchings deep, um, in that bowl. And then my Montana bowl, I shot with a sever and it, it buried in his offside shoulder. So that wasn't a pass through. Um, but I have shot a, a smaller bowl with the original 
Ulmer Edge, which I, I think is what the the Severed Broadheads based off of uh, from Trophy Taker. Okay. And uh, I I did get a pass through with that, um, but for my fixed blade heads, I've I've gotten a lot of pass throughs. Yeah. Do you switch your broadhead? based on the game you're taking? Because, like, I'm looking at an antelope and an elk side by side. Is that something where you'll switch your broadhead over just like a mechanical just to get a wider cut on an antelope and, and more accuracy because it's a smaller target? I'm pretty much switching my heads out if I know um, the, like, antelope hunting in, in Montana, It's it gets really windy, and the, the shots can be quite a bit farther. So I'll, I'll switch just to kind of cut down on that wind drift and um uh for this alaska hunt i'm expect expecting quite a bit of wind too so uh, i'm gonna bring both to alaska I've, I've been shooting my bow quite a bit with with fixed heads and the uh the severs okay. so if if it's windy i'm gonna end up using the the mechanical yeah caribou aren't quite as big of bodied as an elk is that right or is that am i off on that assumption I've never seen one. Um, there's actually there's a place close to where I live at, and I think they raise reindeer for uh, Santa villages, or you know they okay. dress them up around <laughs> Christmas time. And so I've been really watching those caribou all all summer or reindeer. I don't. I think it's reindeer if they're domesticated, but uh, yeah, there's there's some pretty big ones out there, and I've been trying to gauge body size, but I don't know if that's the same body size as a a wild caribou. Mm. Yeah, but that's a good. From point. Pic- from pictures I've seen, I don't. They look like they're bigger body than a mule deer buck, I guess. Um, more closely to I spike elkish. Okay. I, I guess they they kind of look. Yeah. So you shouldn't but have too as, much as issue as, with either broadhead then. Yeah, as far as as hunting them, this is this is my first time to Alaska. Oh. Well, that sounds exciting. Yeah, I, w- I was supposed to go last year on a moose hunt, but um, I I broke my leg early in the uh, on Memorial Day weekend, and I, I wasn't able to make the moose hunt last year. <laughs> yeah, that would be a, a pretty rough moose hunt without being able to train a majority of the summer and then expect to go in after a moose and haul it out. Oof, that'd be a tough hunt. Yeah, so the the hunting season last year wasn't too eventful. <laughs> well, it gives you a chance to maybe sit back, relax, think of new dreams and new places you want to go and new animals you want to hunt. So might be some some uh, benefit to it. Yeah, and I, I, the outfitter understood, you know, the the special circumstances, and they let me rebook the hunt for 2025. So I'm still going to go on the moose hunt, but it just I just got to wait longer. Oh, sorry about that, folks. We had a brief technical issue if you uh, hear a gap. But, no, I was asking, um, on the African stuff, I've always been curious, is that something that it's it's more attainable than people think for, like, an average hunter, or is it something where you really got to plan that out and make it, like, a 10-year goal if you want to do that? No, I'd, I'd say the African stuff is more obtainable than, I'd say, a lot of the North American hunts. Um, so my African hunt was... It was $5,000, and it was, I, I think the original package included a a kudu, and then a wildebeest or zebra, an impala, and a warthog um, was the original agreement. 
but when I when I got over there, um, it seems the 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 tags are just whatever they allow you in that area, and so one thing that the PH told me was if if Hoyt comes out with a new bow, say in October, they don't get it in Africa. He was telling me until about the next year. So I I went over there with a new bow and I had new equipment. So he he was also a a hard hardcore bow hunter. So we just started trading um different equipment for I guess more animals. I so you just said like so it did it work out that you're like hey if you want to shoot like extra animals I'll trade your bow for it and then like you just used your bow for the whole hunt and then you left it with him when you left. Yeah. So uh, he was actually the one that was like picking my gear that he wanted. And I don't know if he had an agreement out with, uh, you know, with whoever runs runs that area. South Africa is a, a lot different than it is in the uh, U.S. So he just kind of, well, he's like, you can shoot this now for your sight and, and your quiver. And uh, I, I ser- should have traded in my bow case because coming back through customs with an empty bow case, um, they didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so was $5,000, man, that doesn't seem like a lot of money. Was that, obviously travel's probably not included with that, but was that lodging and food while you were there as well? Yeah, so it was, um, I, I think our flights were, but we booked them pretty early, um, and I think the flights to Johannesburg from Washington State were around sixteen, seventeen hundred bucks round trip. Hmm. I mean, that's obviously not something someone just goes and buys tomorrow, but I mean, that could be like a one or two year goal and pick up a couple extra shifts a week and all of a sudden you're there. Yeah. One one thing that I, I didn't know uh, when I booked the hunt was South Africa is a lot more, I guess, more of a canned hunt. Um, We were on a, uh, on a property. Um, It was 16,000 hectares, which I think is probably... I, I don't know, um, like 50,000 acres or something. I'm not sure the conversion, but um, so it was a high fence hunt, but we did see Kudu jump over the fence. And I was unaware that the hunt would be like that. Mm. Um, I, I guess all of South Africa is like that. We we were up farther north on the, the border of uh, Botswana on the Limpopo River. So... Um, most of the, the ground we were on didn't have a fence along that river. Um, so game was free to go back and forth from Botswana to South Africa where we were. But yeah, I, I didn't know it was going to be like that. I was expecting, um, I, I'd, I'd say when we were hunting, we never seen the fence actually, but, um, I, I'm more accustomed to, you know, a backcountry elk hunt or, yeah. you know, um, something more North American. Yeah, no, that's that's it's a good insight. So if anyone wants to um to go and do that hunt, to be aware, like hey, just ask. Like if that's important to you, ask about it, um, and pick it accordingly. But you'd almost think like if it was a canned high fence hunt, that it would be more expensive. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think that property, since they were on that river, I, I'm I could be wrong, but at, at the time we went, um. I think Botswana didn't allow for hunting. So there was a lot of big animals moving back and forth across that river. Um, Mm. You know, it it wasn't much of a river, you know, and 
in Washington, we got pretty big rivers, so I'd I'd call that a, a crick, but. <laughs> yeah, true. That's fair. That is fair, especially if animals are easily crossing it. It's obviously not like the Missouri River or the, you know, the um, Mississippi River. So, yeah. Interesting. Did you see when you were there, did you see any like extraordinary animals? Like, did you have any lions come in or like any pre- big predators, big cats or, or like elephants and stuff like that? Obviously, I know those tags are a completely different price range, but I was just curious if you saw anything like that while you were there. Yeah. So, um, I, I got tired of sitting in the blind. Um, and so we went for a walk down by the river and, uh, <laughs> I got kind of a Yellowstone uh, touristy about it. Okay. Because we, we see we see a herd of elephants, and so I'm standing there, and I, I get out my camera, and I'm excited to see elephants, and uh, the the PH didn't notice them, so I I get out my my camera in true uh, Yellowstone tourist fashion to take some pictures, and he turns around and asks me what I'm doing, and um, <laughs> He, I kind of got an ear beaten from him because I guess that situation can get dangerous pretty fast. Um, there was uh, some bulls in the herd with uh, some young calves as well, and I guess they get pretty t- territorial, and we were too close for his comfort anyway. But uh, there I was with my camera <laughs> trying to take pictures. How close were you? Uh, we were, I'd say, 100 yards or so, but I guess I guess that's pretty close for wild elephants. Well, I, I've seen videos of them running, and they can run pretty darn fast. I wonder, like, obviously it's dangerous no matter what you do, but if you got into a situation, I wonder if we are, like, nimble enough to, like, you know, like kind of like a bull in a matador situation where, like, they're going to charge you, and then you just duck, dart to the side, and they can't maybe turn as fast. I don't know. It would be a pretty stupid thing to try if they're like, no, they can turn pretty darn fast and clip you. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. A lot of that, that brush over there, you know, it's a uh... – I don't know if you've ever hunted Arizona or not, but it seems like in Arizona, every every plant wants to rip you and poke you. And uh, South oh. Africa's, yeah, worse. That I mean, every every plant over there has, you know, it's what size a thorn it has is more the question. And I think those elephants would just mow it all over. I don't. Th- there's not really much to hide behind where we were. Yeah, you know, that wouldn't be a long-term play. It would be like, I'm going to avoid the first charge, and hopefully the <laughs> pH can take care of it. But, yeah, I suppose you have to decide, am I going to take my chances with the elephant, or am I going to go through the meat grinder on the brush? Yeah. That sounds interesting. Um, but but uh, lucky for us, the elephants never noticed us, so uh, we were we were fine. Okay, cool. Did you... How does it work for like taxidermy? You're taking your animals home. Do, are you able to do that? Or I know like sometimes they hold on to them for a certain number of years. So um, the way we done it was, um, I, I talked to my normal taxidermist, and he told me that they will try to get you to hire a trophy consultant. Um, he said it's a big ripoff. Don't do it. It's not worth your money. And he, he told me kind of the, the game plan. He's had other clients go to Africa and, and do it both ways. So he, he said, make sure to specifically tell them that I want my trophies to go to the Seattle port, not, um, you know, JFK or whatever the, the port is in uh, New York City. And so when, when I did that, the, the taxidermist there and the, the trophy consultant kind of knew – I guess what I was up to. 
so they weren't too happy about it but i just had my shipment sent to seattle which is about four and a half hours from where i live so i just drove over there and i i went to fish and game and and got a piece of paper and i brought it to uh, delta cargo and brought it back to fish and game and had the, the paper signed and brought it back over and it was um you know those two buildings were a mile apart so it was 15 um, minutes of work that I guess could have cost me a thousand extra bucks and they just sent it in a, in a big crate. So did they send like, did they just send like your skull caps and like a tanned hide or a salted hide or did they, did you have to get it mounted over in Africa? So the, my taxidermist told me um, that over in Africa, they, they tend to, he, he said they pickle their, their hides and it's, um, it's not as good of a process as the, the soft tanning that the taxidermists in North America use. Okay. So he, he'd also told me just to have them salt, salt the capes and we would um, be able to work on them from there. So I, I just had them salt all my capes and they sent over the skull caps. Okay. So is it, was it, well, first of all, like the people that you go with are like your professional hunter or PH was, was that an American person or was that not an American person? No, he was a South African. Okay. Uh, but obviously there's not a very strong communication barrier. Like he spoke English just fine and you could like communicate what you wanted. Yeah. How did you find like, so one thing that I would be worried about is like going to a new continent, doing a new thing. Like, how did you find like, this is the person I want to hunt with? Or like, this is the trip I want to go on. Did you meet this person while he was like promoting at trade shows in the States or, or how did you know that this was a place that you wouldn't, basically that you would go to and you're not going to get ripped off. Um, the, this was a connection from um, um, my, my brother in Montana. He, uh, he lined up everything and um, he has a friend in New York who has been on this, this hunt with, with this, um, uh, his name's Yanni uh, a few times. So he, he lined everything up oh, okay. um, for us to go. So it, he, he knew about Yanni and, got us all set up with the hunt oh so that helps like knowing someone that's been there before and has done it because that's that would be my biggest thing like going in blind and they say hey, yeah you can you know for example they'll tell you maybe on the phone like yeah you can do whatever you want we'll send your hides wherever then you get over there and they're like ah never mind we're just going to use our own taxidermist and then like shipping would be a nightmare to ship like a, a shoulder mount over yeah and then uh the the guy that was also there in camp. His name was John. He was a, um, uh, a New York police officer and he gets his stuff taxidermied over there. And he said it, it takes them about two years to, to get his mounts back to him. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> well, to be fair, it took me about two years to get my elk back. So, and that was from yeah. my guy in my hometown. <clears throat> so, um, wow, that sounds cool. I, I never really have had the African bug, hearing you talk about it and looking at the, the story, I do think it would be fun. Um, I don't know if it, how, where it would rank for me, but just the, the shot opportunity and the, like the game and just, I feel like it's like type one fun, not type two fun where like an elk hunt, like a backcountry elk hunt's like type two fun, right? You, you, it's kind of grueling when you're doing it, but you look back on it and just love the, love the story and love that you did it. Whereas like, I would say Africa is probably like more type one fun where it's just a fun, easy going hunt, but maybe not one that you're going to 
tell the most stories about because it wasn't like as grueling or or challenging or you know what i mean yeah i'd, I'd totally agree with that um and that was something since since i didn't line up the hunt i didn't know uh what exactly we were getting into but yeah the, we were we were eating good every night and um you know the ph would would drop me off um you know food and stuff in, in the blind at midday so yeah it was for sure type one uh fun cool cool did you get to eat any of the animals because i know typically the animals go towards like the local people or like most of the meat goes towards the local people but did you get to eat any parts of it yeah so we um we actually made some jerky while we were in camp um uh, my mom actually went on the hunt too so yeah yeah the i got a, a black bear um in a trap so that's that's why everyone's calling me we got to go collar this black bear oh well i'm definitely not cutting that part out of the podcast because that sounds really cool (laughs) but yeah we've uh we've been um so along the lines of our elk herd um we've noticed some some population dynamics and some bull cat ratios that have been off um really making our rut length really long so when tribal members get a cow tag for the general rifle season we'll take out the embryos and we can tell the the date that cow was bred okay so what i started noticing was you know we were getting cows bred as early as labor day weekend and we were getting cows bred as late as halloween oh um for for years and um quite a while i think going back to 07 or so we were allowing for like a open general spike bull harvest in the south portion of the reservation okay and and so we're really cutting down on our bull recruitment so our our bull cow ratios were pretty low you know we were getting really old bulls who were getting wise to the hunts and we were getting a lot of spike harvest every year so we were kind of missing that middle age class of bull um like looking into our population dynamics and i think a lot of spikes were trying to do a lot of the breeding so they're they're missing cows and the cows are forced to second even third estrus. Um, so we're also tacking on a black bear study and we're looking into like neonatal. Go. Um... Okay, I I finally texted him. I told him to quit calling. Okay. Well. Uh, but I I am on my way back out there. Yeah. Okay. So it does sound like. So it sounds like you're studying, it kind of got choppy there, but it sounds like you're studying if there's more predation from black bears on calves because they're having a longer drop window. Yeah, just just because, you know, elk and a lot of the other cervid and game species, they're evolved to, you know, to really focus that, that rut length, you know, and con- condense it. So, you know, there's less predation. You get a big boar black bear that gets into a calving ground, and if, say, that that black bear can eat one calf a day you know if if our rut length ends up being 60 days that's potentially 60 calves he can uh right can eat so yeah i definitely get it um i definitely get that that uh the predation thing and so it's really cool that you guys are able to do studies like that and make an impact because you got a kind of a fixed landscape that you're dealing with with the reservation so that sounds pretty cool yeah so but right before the black bear topic came up, you said that you guys were able to make some jerky in camp, and so did you bring some of that home then? 
No, it's it's actually illegal to bring back any meat, so that that meat has to stay in Africa. Oh, well, that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, it's especially being like a, a North American hunter. You know the the meats. You know, like your main prize as well. So not being able to bring any of that home was kind of a bummer. Did it? Do you feel like most of the meat went to good causes though? Like it was feeding people in Africa, or or did they not use most of it? Uh. I think they use most of it. I think they they mentioned that there was a, a meat processing facility where they make a lot of sausage and stuff too, and I think that's where they were planning on on taking it. So, oh well, at least that's good. At least that's yeah. good. But man, Derek, just like that, we've we've been racked up an hour, and uh, obviously you got to go deal with the black bear, and so I will. Um, I'll wrap this up, and it's been an amazing podcast talking to you, talking about Africa and all the cool th- adventures you've done here in North America as well. But before we do that, if you'd like to give the listeners a, a quick rundown of your socials and the Instagram and where they could go and maybe look at some of these pictures we've been talking about, uh, feel free to do so. Okay, yeah, uh, my Instagram is, um, heck, I don't even know it. I think it's Derek underscore Abrahamson. Yep. Um and it's just spelt like that. And I, I should upload a lot more. I have a, a lot cooler pictures on my phone. I'm just not the, the best social media guy. So um, I, I, don't, I don't do the Facebook thing or anything like that either. So Cool. Well, we'll put a link to your Instagram. There's a lot of cool pictures on there already. So if you upload more, it's just going to be that much better. But I will, um, I'll let you go. I'll let you take care of that bear, put a collar on it, add to your study, and I will... Um, Obviously, if you, I'd love to have you on again in the future if you have some cool stories from the, the exciting hunts you're going on this fall. And for everyone else, thank you for listening.